0: Those words are amazing. And one day we will stand blameless, faultless before your throne. In the presence of holiness, in the presence of perfect sovereignty and majesty, we will be able to stand and be declared blameless. That is a truth that is truly unbelievable if it were not for the gospel. Where you take wretched sinners, do the work of cleansing their sin, do the work of giving them perfection, and then bringing them safely home. That's why we say we dare not trust any other frame don't build upon sand, we don't build upon anything but your oath, your covenant, your righteousness, and your perfection, that is the only cornerstone that will hold, and that is the only anchor that we trust in, Christ alone. Jesus, be pleased as we long to see you in the scriptures, as we long to magnify your sacrifice, your death, and your resurrection, be pleased as we give careful attention to your word and reveal the character of you, our awesome and great God. Teach us this day all for the praise of the glory of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, while everything is getting moved out of the way, I just want to, again, say a huge uh, happy Mother's Day and just a huge thank you to our church that is so nurturing and nourishing and loving, kind, compassionate, caring. I just, I absolutely treasure our church. I can't wait until we are all back together again. Oh. How I longed for that day. I was, uh, I was saying to Michaela, she was setting everything up in the camera this morning. I was saying, oh, here we go. I got to look into a camera again. And boy, I'm getting tired of looking into a camera and not looking into the faces of my people. I miss you all so much. One day, soon, one day, Lord willing. Well, go ahead and grab your copy of God's word. Turn with me to Habakkuk, Chapter One, Habakkuk Chapter One. As you are turning there, uh, I was just thinking through Habakkuk and thinking through how many different illustrations I could understand and think of, and just made me remind uh, reminded me of Habakkuk. And one of the illustrations that reminded me of everything that Habakkuk is going through and the way that he's speaking, specifically with regard to lamenting, is from that amazing movie Fiddler on the Roof. Many of you have seen it. You love that movie. You remember Precious Tevya. Uh, Tevye, at the beginning of the movie, you've got Tevye walking with his horse, and his horse has a lame foot. You remember this scene. His horse has a lame foot, and Tevye Tevye is just grunting and groaning as he's walking home slowly but surely with this precious animal that's lame, and he's just uh, uh, walking home with this animal. And here's what Tevye says. Dear God, was that really necessary? Did you have to make him lame just before the Sabbath? That wasn't very nice. It's enough that you pick on me. Bless me with five daughters, a life of poverty. That's all right. But what have you got against my horse? Really, sometimes I think when things are too quiet up there, you say to yourself, let's see what kind of mischief I can play on my friend Tevya." I know, I know, we are your chosen people. But once in a while, can't you choose someone else? As the good book says, heal us, O Lord, and we shall be healed. In other words, send us the cure because we've got the sickness already. Am I bothering you too much? I'm sorry. As the good book says, wait, why am I telling you what the good book says? I'm not really complaining. After all, with your help, I'm starving to death. Oh, dear Lord, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, that it's no shame to be poor, but it's not a great honor either what would have been so terrible if I had had a small fortune? And then you remember he goes into that amazing song, If I Were a Rich Man. Now, there are things obviously in this that are are just for, for comedic purposes and silly and fun. There are things that, obviously this is a movie, it's not God's word, but there were some aspects of what Tevya is saying that just resonated with my own heart and my own understanding of lament. For instance, he calls God his friend. God, you're doing all of these things to me, and you have the power to do other things to me. You're not, but you have called me your friend. He says, God, you're calling me your friend. Now, while it is a movie, I do think that Tevya gets that language and that attitude from the prophets, from lamenters like Jeremiah, like Job, like Malachi, like Habakkuk. I've heard it said this way, Christians defend God while Jews argue with him. They argue with him. And as we've said before, it takes faith to argue with God. Because you're saying, I believe this about you. I believe who you are. I believe what you say in your word. I believe this about you. And this just doesn't look like it matches who you are. This doesn't look like who you are. It takes faith to do that. Obviously, there's an arguing that can be blasphemous. Obviously, there's an arguing that can go into sin with pride and, and uh, anger. But this, this type of lament, lament that we've seen from Habakkuk is so necessary. And we, we spent a while looking at his first lament. And by God's grace, here we enter into a second lament. Lamenting is processing your grief. It's processing those moments in life where you feel like your soul has a migraine. You just feel like, what am I supposed to do in these moments? And we have to learn it. Lament doesn't come intuitively to us. We have to learn how to process these things. What comes intuitively to us is is Instagram, which is the exact opposite of lament. Lament is saying, here is everything that's going wrong in my life. And Instagram throws all that to the side and says, here's everything that's going right in my life. Habakkuk is going to say, God, here's everything that's going wrong. And why aren't you doing anything about it? You remember in his first lament, he said, God, your chosen people are evil. And they're committing violence and atrocious acts with one another. And you're doing nothing about it. You're just waiting. So how long and why? Those were his his two first questions. God, how long are you going to wait before you do anything? And why are you allowing this evil to continue? Now, his second lament is going to be a response to God's response to him. Remember, we looked at God graciously answers. He says, I'm doing something you wouldn't even possibly comprehend if I told you. You're limited. You're finite. I'm unlimited. I'm infinite. I'm eternal and i have a plan that you couldn't even possibly comprehend and habakkuk is going to struggle with the plan because you remember the plan is i'm going to bring the evil babylonians into judah they're going to discipline my chosen people they're going to bring them into captivity and oppression and habakkuk says i don't like that i don't like that answer that answer doesn't make sense to me habakkuk's first problem was with god's silence god where are you what are you doing why are you waiting And now his problem is going to be with God's sovereignty. Wait, that's the way you choose to do things? But in Habakkuk's struggle and in his lament this morning, we will see how his lament is now going to begin pressing him into the character of God and transforming his own mind and spirit. We're going to see the transformation that lament brings. Without lament, these things wouldn't be taking place in Habakkuk's life. So let's read these verses and then... Ask God's blessing on our time. Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. This is Habakkuk's second lament in response to God answering his first. Are you not from everlasting? O oh Lord, my God, my Holy One, we will not die. You, O oh Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O oh Rock, have established them to correct. But your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. So why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Babylonians bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net. They gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer sacrifices to their nets. They burn incense to their fishing nets because through these things, their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how i may reply when i am reproved father we we ask for your help these verses these words are so precious and if we just quickly gloss over them we're going to miss the punch that they pack. We're going to miss the beauty that's inherent, the glory that is in these verses, and we're going to miss the transformation that's starting to work itself out in Habakkuk's heart and in his life. God, we want the same transformation. We want to move from provision prayers to presence prayers. From God, I need this, to God, I need you. So Father, help us. Holy Spirit, be our guide and our teacher this morning. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Without you, we won't see anything that we need to see. But with you, miracles can happen in our minds and our hearts where we will be changed for all of eternity. So do that miracle-working power and supernatural work in our lives with the gift of illumination to give us understanding. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. There are just two main aspects to this Passage two aspects of Habakkuk's lament that's going to begin moving into this transformation process. The first is uh, Habakkuk is going to appeal to God's holiness, he's going to make an appeal to God's character and his holiness. He does that in verses 12 through 17. He makes an appeal to God's holiness. You can see in verse 12, he says, Are you not from everlasting? So he's going to respond to God's response to him. God says, I'm doing something you wouldn't possibly comprehend, but namely, I'm bringing the Babylonians in to judge you. And Habakkuk is now even more perplexed. How can a good God, a holy God, use an evil nation to judge his own people? Again, this lament is an attempt to reconcile the character of God with what God is doing or allowing to be done. Habakkuk, in essence, is saying, The cure that you have come up with, God, is worse than the disease that we had. When you're letting such an awful evil people come in and destroy an already evil people, you're using two evil people. This isn't working. This isn't right. But you have to know where Habakkuk begins this lament. His first lament was just, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you allowing these things to happen? And now his lament begins with the character of God. He's going to press right into God's character. He calls on God's name and he calls on God's character. He says, you are the everlasting one. Are you not? This is a rhetorical question. You are the everlasting one. You're infinite. You're eternal. Oh, Lord, my God, my holy one. Oh, Lord, that's Yahweh. That's God's covenant keeping name. You are the covenant keeper. You are God. You are Elohim. And he says, you are my God. Habakkuk is not abandoning God. You're my God. He's not saying you are a God that's ruthless and far off. No, you're still my God. I'm not abandoning you because I know you're not abandoning me. You are my covenant-keeping God. He's not distancing himself from God in lament. Lament presses you into God instead of distancing you from God. And then he says, you're my Holy One. This is, again, first-person pronoun, my. It's accompanying all these titles. You are my God, my Holy One. You're still my God. But you're holy. You are holy. You can't look upon sin with favor. You are completely set apart. You're completely removed from everything that we do, from who we are, from how we operate. You're holy. And it doesn't seem like your character and these circumstances can work together. He says this in the middle of verse 12, based off of what he's just said, based off of the fact that God's infinite and everlasting that God is Yahweh, a covenant-keeping God that has made a covenant with his people and he won't go back on that covenant. He is God, he is Elohim, he is the Holy One, he will always keep his word. He says these words, we will not die. You're telling us Babylon's coming in and Babylon's gonna destroy us, but I know, God, that we will not ultimately die. There are gonna be people in this generation that do die, but we will not ultimately die because you've made a covenant with us that we will never die. So Habakkuk says, even in his lament, God, I don't understand and I don't like this. He's still saying, but I know what's true about you. I know what's true about your character. So I know we're not going to die. But you, O Lord, you've appointed them, the Babylonians, to judge. You've appointed them. You're sovereign. You're king. You're ushering them in to do a work. You are a rock. Again, he says, you, O Lord, that's Yahweh. You're a covenant-keeping God. This doesn't go against your covenant. You are a rock. You are firmly uh, immovable, unchanging in your character. You are God, very God. And you've established them to correct us. This is all God's sovereignty on display. Habakkuk is pressing into his eternality. Habakkuk is pressing into God's holiness and God's sovereignty. You're king over everything. You're using these people. He's rightly proclaiming these things. And that's why he begins his lament in verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You're holy, you're set apart. You can't approve evil. You can't look upon wickedness with favor. And yet that's exactly what you're doing. You can't look upon iniquity and evil with favor, and yet it looks like you are doing that. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? You're silent when the wicked are swallowed up, when the wicked are swallowing up those that are more righteous than they. Where are you, God? What are you doing? This is an appeal to God's holiness. God, you're not able to look on wickedness and evil, and yet you're allowing evil to happen. You're using evil. This doesn't seem right. One commentator says it this way, Habakkuk eases into his lament by first affirming what he knows must be true despite his own perceptions. I know this is true, despite what it feels like and looks like. His God is of purer eyes than to see evil. Obviously, God does, in some sense, see evil. He's omniscient, and his omniscience extends to all the affairs of his creation. But he never looks to condone or tolerate evil. As the organ of perception, the eye represents that organ of sense that most often first contacts an object. Long before the hand touches, the eye sees. Even a momentary glance towards iniquity while it still remains at the farthest distance is not possible for God. His holiness cannot abide iniquity. And so Habakkuk says, you have just told me that you're going to allow and even use iniquity for your purposes and those don't seem to be making sense. For many in Habakkuk's time, it would have been just as hard for them to swallow this understanding of Babylon coming in to destroy Judah, as it would be for, say, America during the Cold War to be told that God was going to use the Russians or the red Chinese government to punish the United States for its sins. Or think about today, if we were to lament, God, why are you allowing the evil and atrocity of abortion to continue? Why don't you do something about it? Your eyes can't look upon evil and you know this is wrong and you're not pleased by it. So why do you allow it to continue? If God were to answer and say, oh, I've got a plan. Iraq and Iran are in talks and communication and ISIS is going to come over here and ISIS is going to destroy America and rule and reign in America. We'd say, okay, I wish that I hadn't asked the first question. Now the the cure for our problem is worse than the problem itself. You can't do that. That's why Habakkuk says, you're silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they. Sure, we're not righteous. Uh, we're, We're sinful people, but we're way better than Babylon. That's what Habakkuk is saying. My problem was with Judah having all this sin and violence and iniquity. Well, Babylon's 10 times worse than us. We do the same thing. We struggle when God responds to our prayers when we don't like the way he answers. We struggle in these very same ways that Habakkuk is struggling. And and I think the reason, there's two reasons, namely, that we struggle to understand what God is doing in these times. I think we struggle for two reasons. Number one, our understanding of love. And number two, our understanding of justice. Our understanding of love and of justice. These are the reasons why I believe we struggle to see what God is doing and why God's allowing things to happen in these moments. Number one, our understanding of love. I think our view of love is all skewed and wrong. When we say God is love, we think of his love the way that we think of love, where maybe you're watching a sports team and it's your favorite team and you're I love these guys. I love this team. They're my, they're my favorite team. I love them so much. And then they do something terrible and oh, I hate this team. I, I knew they were gonna let me down. They always do. We're so fickle in our love that we end up projecting that onto God and and thinking that God's doing the same thing here. Okay, God, you love us. You're allowing us to exist. Now you must hate us. You're letting Babylon come in and destroy us. So your love is fickle. I love my people. Now I don't love my people. I love my people. Ah, I hate what they're doing. That's why what Habakkuk says is so important. God, you're you're Yahweh. You're a covenant-keeping God. Your hesed love that gives unconditionally to your people That's what I rely on. We struggle because we struggle with a true understanding of love. This is not unloving of God to bring in discipline, to bring in judgment. This is an aspect of God's divine love. Secondly, our view of justice is skewed. Our view of justice is broken. We love justice. We are a people who love justice justice. This is why we love Marvel movies and DC movies. This is why we love comic book stories put on a big screen because you have good, you have evil, evil seems to be winning, and then good destroys evil. We love these stories. This is why you have all those Judge Judy uh, TV shows on television and how many CSIs are there on television? CSI, Vegas and Miami and Los Angeles and Chicago and Tehachapi and Carson City. And I mean, we have so many CSIs out there. Why? Because we are a people who love when evil is destroyed. But what about when it's our evil? What about when it's our evil? We love justice until we, until we start talking about God being just and about God being a God of wrath. We really don't like thinking of God as wrathful, and we really don't like to think of ourselves as deserving of God's wrath. This is why we misunderstand what God is doing a lot of the times. We misunderstand how evil we are. Sure, Babylon is worse than Judah in a degree of their sin, but they're not worse in the original concept of what sin is. They're not worse in the sense of the sin that Judah is struggling with is the exact same sin that Babylon is struggling with. It's the exact same sin that we struggle with. But we tend not to see that. That's why Habakkuk says, hey, we're more righteous than they. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. You will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we can never do it. There's only one way to know that we are sinners and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. In other words, we don't feel the weight of our sin because of our sin. And so we need a glimmering conception of God as Martin Lloyd-Jones says. And that's exactly what Habakkuk is receiving. But he struggles. He struggles. He's appealing to God's holiness. And he says, just in case God has forgotten what he just told Habakkuk. Remember, he just said to Habakkuk, Babylon's coming in, and they are guilty. They're not going to go unpunished. They deserve judgment all the way back up in verse 11. They will be held guilty, those whose strength is their God. He talked about how they mock kings, how they're men of violence. But just in case God has forgotten, Habakkuk's going to remind God. Habakkuk says in verse 14, why have you made us like fish in the sea? You've made men like fish in the sea. We're just like fish in a barrel that There's no way we're getting out of this alive. You are just going to leave us here to die. We're hopeless. We're helpless. And there's no hope whatsoever for us making it out of this. We are like creeping things without a ruler over us. This is so interesting. We're, we're rudderless as, as fish just kind of meandering around, and we're rulerless. But he had just said that God's sovereign. He's allowing and ordaining. Remember in, in verse 12, you have appointed them to judge. You're sovereign and our appointing. You as king have established them to correct. But now he says, but it feels like we have no king. It feels like we have no king. The Babylonians, verse 15, bring all of them up. He's using this analogy of fish, bringing all of them up with a hook, dragging them away with their net and gathering them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. He's gonna keep on using this analogy of, of hooks and of fishing nets. It's very interesting. He uses fish hooks, a hook. He uses that once. And then he uses fish nets twice. And then he uses this idea of a drag net dragging with the net three times. And a drag net is... The best way to catch fish, a hook, you get the one. Uh, A net, you get multiple. And a dragnet is just this wall of netting with weights on the end of it that you just pull behind a boat or something, and and it just grabs all of the fish in the sea. A dragnet is the most efficient of all of these things. And so Habakkuk is saying, he's using that analogy to say, we're like fish, and Babylon has a dragnet, and you're allowing them to come in and to take us all out. He's using this imagery figuratively, obviously. But there is a literal aspect to what he's saying, and I think he's using it as a figure of speech and literally. Not that they are fish, but that Babylon actually did both of these things to their prisoners. Assyria was well known for putting hooks in the lower lips of their uh, captors, and they'd put a hook in the lip, and then they'd take that hook, and they'd tie it to the person in front of them. They'd make this long line of people, and so that if... The person in front of you fell or stumbled or went too quickly. The hook would just rip out of your lip. It was barbaric. It was just for the purpose of bringing pain and agony to those that you are oppressing, those those that you've taken captive. And Babylon loved that because Babylon loves violence. So they learned this trick, and they perfected it with other means of placing hooks other places, and they thought this is a great idea. So Habakkuk is saying, they're going to drag us away with a hook. Literally, they will do that. And then they're also going to drag us away with a net. Obviously, it's figure, figuratively in regards to that fishing net. But we actually have, they're called reliefs uh, in archaeology. It's just a, a slab of rock with a picture on it or uh, some form of putting a picture on a wall. Uh, they're reliefs in Babylon. We have reliefs in Babylon, pictures of them doing this to their captors, to, to their captives, to the ones that they were oppressing. They would put hooks in their lips. They'd put hooks in their noses. And they dragged drag them with nets. They'd put nets around them and drag them, just uh, throwing things at them, throwing things on them, belittling them, making them feel as if they were just beasts, just animals, just lowly creatures. And there's a relief uh, of Babylon pulling all of these captives in a net, and uh, Babylonians are just rejoicing around it, saying, we have won. We have won. Look at how awesome we are. That's what... Habakkuk is saying. So it's bad enough that they're violent and they're going to bring away God's chosen people with violence. But then he says, verse 16, even worse than that, they're going to then offer a sacrifice to their net. They're going to burn incense to their fishing net. They're going to, uh, because the catch is large and the food is plentiful, they're going to worship their nets. So he says, you're allowing them not only to destroy us, but then they will exalt and worship themselves and their idols as God, not you. You're allowing them to commit idolatry. You're furthering their idolatry. Perhaps Habakkuk is saying all of these different things to stir God's heart to compassion or jealousy. God, look at what you're allowing to happen to your people. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you say those exact words to God. God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? That's what Habakkuk is saying. And so he find, finally asks in verse 17, will they therefore empty their nets, continually slaying nations without sparing? They just go into the sea, they grab their nets, they throw all the fish there, they go in, they got and grab more, they just get another catch and another catch. Is that what you're going to allow to happen? Just continually over and over and over and over again. To Habakkuk, it seems like God is tolerating what he opposes, even though God had just said they're not going to be let off the hook. They will be guilty because their strength is their God. But Habakkuk, you can see, is struggling to even hear all the things that God is saying. How could this possibly be in agreement with the justice of God? How does all this fit with God's plan for his chosen people? God's plan for his chosen people was to have a land in peace and prosperity, and now you're seemingly zigzagging your way to accomplish that goal. This is going 17 steps backwards and one step forward. God, what are you doing? God's doing the exact opposite of the things that Habakkuk would anticipate, and therefore Habakkuk laments. Now, we talked a lot about lament a few weeks ago, but I just want to remind us that what Habakkuk is doing is not weak faith, but perplexed faith. It's very interesting reading through commentaries. Uh, John Calvin, we, we, we love John Calvin. Obviously, he's not uh, inerrant and infallible and inspired in what he's saying. He's not God's word. He's a sinner just like us, and he's done some terrible things. But we like a lot of the things that he writes and the things that he talks about. We like a lot of his doctrine and theology and the way that he writes and uh, examines God's word. But I actually disagree with John Calvin because John Calvin believes that what Habakkuk is doing is blasphemous, that it's full of doubt. It's full of uh, just being impetuous about God, just rashly speaking. Calvin says, the prophet is almost profane here because he implies that God's not ruling well and not acting justly in creation. As such, he's not affirming with faith that God rules well despite all other appearances. This intensive probing of the purposes of God by the prophet should not be analyzed from our perspective as weak weak faith, though Calvin says this is weak faith, but I don't think it's weak faith. And there are many commentators that say, uh, despite what John Calvin is saying, they'll say, no, this is an example of lament and this is good. There are some, like Calvin, that say, no, what he said, he should just zip his lip and stop talking. And again, I think that Job's friends would probably say the same thing. Questions are natural in life and in faith. Questions are natural. Questioning God is not a faithless action but rather a radically faithful response by those who know and love God. We need to learn how to pray like Habakkuk. We need to learn to pray from Habakkuk here in Habakkuk chapter one, pressing into the character of God, pressing into the names of God, pressing into who God is and saying, God, I don't understand. This isn't the end of his lament. We're going to finish it out in one verse, but I don't understand. But he's bringing those things to God. Parents, what is your least favorite word that your kids say to you? Uh, yes, it's no. Don't like that word. But my least favorite word that my kids say to me is the word fine. I despise that word. Usually follows after my questioning at the dinner table. How are you doing today? How was your day today? Fine. And <laughs> my kids aren't even teenagers, so I think this is just going to get progressively worse. Fine. Fine. I mean, I remember as a teenager doing this. You don't want to share your heart. As parents, all I want to do is hear my kid's heart. I just want their heart to come right out of their mouth and tell me everything. I want to download like a a little USB port in their brain. I want to know everything they're thinking, everything they're feeling. Good parents love to hear these things from their kids. Is our Heavenly Father any different? Is he up in heaven saying, man, would you stop telling me everything? Would you just answer, fine? Everything's fine. No, God wants us to honestly give us our hearts, give him our hearts, say, this is who I am. This is what I'm struggling with. That's why I totally disagree with John Calvin. I don't think Habakkuk is being blasphemous at all. Habakkuk is bringing to God his heart and saying, I don't get this. Please help me. And he's going to say that in the next verse. I don't get it, but I'm going to wait. And I know I'm wrong even in what I'm saying. I know I'm wrong even in the way that I'm seeing these things. There's something I don't get. And so I'm just bringing my request to you. I'm bringing my heart to you. Prayer is a sharing of hearts. We share our hearts with God, and we desire that he shares his heart with us. That's what Habakkuk is doing in his lament, appealing to God's character in light of the circumstances that are going on and saying, these two don't match, and I don't understand it. But he doesn't end there. This is point number two. He awaits. Not only does he appeal Uh, to God's holiness, but he awaits, number two, God's response with hope and humility. He awaits God's response with hope and humility. He doesn't just appeal to God's character and say, okay, part two, what are you doing? I don't get it. I'm done. Mic drop. I'm out. He says, I don't understand and I don't get it, but I've changed even at the beginning of this book, from the beginning, there's already been a transformation. Look at what he says in chapter two, verse one. And remember. There's no chapter divisions in the original. It's just one scroll. So there's no real need for this chapter break. It's not the best place to put the break. He says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. This is Habakkuk waiting with hope and humility. This is his response. He's awaiting God answering him, but he's doing so with two enormous character qualities, hope and humility. First, look at his waiting. His waiting is real waiting. He says, I'm stopping everything I'm doing. He uses the imagery of an army sentry on the the walls, watching and waiting for an enemy to come. He says, I'm just going to stay here. My post now, my job now is to stand here and wait. I'm not going back to normal life. I'm not going back to normal things. I'm just going to wait for you to respond. And he's waiting for two things. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me, so I'm going to wait for God to answer me. I know God's going to answer me. And how does he know that? He knows that because God already did. Habakkuk brought a lament to God, and God answered him. So Habakkuk says, can I ask another question? Here's another lament. And he knows God's going to answer me. He did it once before. He's going to do it again. He's solitary. He's solitary standing on these walls, as it were. He waits to see what God will respond, and then he waits to see how God will reprove. The word reprove is rebuke or correction, saying you're wrong, Habakkuk. Habakkuk is waiting for both of those things. But notice he starts by going to God. He starts by going to God. One commentator says it this way, Habakkuk will not resort to the resources of human wisdom, Instead, he will watch for an answer that can only come from the Lord. Habakkuk knows that in accordance with the nature of the prophetic office in Israel, revelation from God alone can answer his perplexity. Both the humility and the hope of the prophet provide appropriate direction for us in the church throughout all of these ages. God's ways are higher than our ways, and only by his revelation can the genuine perplexities of God's dealings with human beings be comprehended. He goes straight to God. The opposite of that is to say, I'm gonna figure God out in my own feeble meaning, in my own feeble mind, my own feeble understanding, I'm gonna figure God out on my own. This is the opposite of going to God saying, I don't understand, here's all my problems, here's all my difficulties, here's all my distresses, I don't understand, please help me. The opposite is saying, I'll figure this out on my own and I don't need you. Now, John Calvin here, I totally agree with. He's gonna say this, all, listen to his words, All who indulge themselves in their own counsels, saying, I don't need your help, God. I'll figure this out on my own. They deserve to be forsaken by God and to be left by him to be driven up and down here and there by Satan. For the only unfailing security for the faithful is to acquiesce in God's word. The only unfailing security for the faithful is to say, God, speak to me through your word and I will gladly submit. You can see how John Calvin can get a little bit fired up there in what he's saying. I agree with that point that he says, don't look inward for wisdom. Don't look inward for understanding. We're limited. And I believe that Habakkuk is recognizing that, realizing that. He's affirming that. God just told him, you wouldn't even understand if I told you all the plans. And Habakkuk's saying, you're right. I have limited understanding, I have limited knowledge. You're right. You're right. Habakkuk reveals a mature wisdom in his determination that his responses be shaped by what God himself would speak to him. It is a wise man who takes his questions about God to God for the answers. So Habakkuk says, I'm going to take the questions that I have about God to God. I'm not going anywhere else. I'm not going inside. I'm going to God. So first, he's hopeful in his waiting. And then secondly, he's humble in his waiting. He's hopeful in his waiting and he's humble in his waiting. He says, I'm going to stand on my guard post. I'm going to station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what God will speak to me. He doesn't say, I'm going to keep watch to see when God speaks, if God speaks. No, what? I know that he is going to speak. And so I'm waiting to see what you're going to say. I know you're going to reply because you already did it. You love hearing the cries of your people. You love hearing the hearts of your people, even in their distresses, doubts, questions, concerns. You love hearing your people talk. And it's really interesting because here he says, I'm going to wait. Remember, his first lament had two questions. His first lament had why and how long. His second lament just has one question, why? This still doesn't make sense to me, God, but now how long is removed? That timing issue has been removed in Habakkuk's lament. This is what happens in the process of lament. At the beginning, it's answer me, God. Answer for yourself. I don't know what you're doing. I need help. I need hope. I need to know. And then it moves to, I don't need to know the time frame. I would love to, but I don't need to know the time frame because I trust your character. I trust that you're good. I trust that you're infinite, you're eternal. All the things that Habakkuk said about God now bring Habakkuk to say, I can wait. No more how long, I will gladly wait because I know that I can trust you. Still, I have why questions, but one of my questions in my first lament has been dropped. Let's wait for God. He will surely demonstrate in the end that he alone is Lord of all history. So Habakkuk says, I can wait. But it's not just hopeful waiting, knowing God's going to respond. It's also humble waiting. And this is why I disagree with what Calvin said about uh, Habakkuk earlier, about Habakkuk being this blasphemous figure of bringing doubts and concerns and questions to God, and and that's blasphemy. I don't agree with that because I think the posture with which Habakkuk is bringing these to God is one of utter humility. Look at what he says. I'm, I'm waiting, middle of verse two, to keep watch to see what he's going to say to me. And then I want to reply back to him, When I am reproved, I have to get my heart right because, this is what Habakkuk is saying, I know that I have misunderstood things about God. I've gotten things wrong about his word, about his answer to me. I've gotten things wrong about his character, his nature. I've gotten things wrong about his dealings with humanity. I don't know everything. This is him owning his limited understanding, his finiteness. And so Habakkuk says, I know there are things that are wrong in what I'm saying. I don't, I don't think that he's saying there are things wrong with how he is bringing these requests to God, with the tone of how he's bringing them. I think he's humbly bringing them, saying, God, I don't understand. But I think he's saying, inside of what I don't understand, you're going to correct me, because I know there are things I've gotten wrong in this. So I will wait. I want to learn to reply with humility, with reason. I want to learn to reply God when he comes and corrects me. He's awaiting God's correction. One commentator says the prophet braces himself for the rebuke that he knows is sure to come. He knows it's sure to come. He's expecting God to return in his second response and say, hey, you got it all wrong. So he says, I'm going to wait. He waits with hope. I know God's going to answer. God's not leaving me. And he waits with humility. I know I've got things wrong and the way I'm seeing things Notice how he's been transformed. Just already, we're going to see the huge transformation at the end of this book. But notice how he's already being transformed. The beginning was how long and why. Now it's just why. But I'm fine to wait, and I know I'm, I'm getting things wrong. All of this is because he's living out the process of lamenting and pressing himself into the character and nature of God. He says, in essence, "I'm going to wait. I'm going to be quiet." I'm going to stop talking. I'm not sure exactly what's all going on here. But I do know that there are certain facts that are true about God and I'm going to hold on to what I'm confident about who God is and I will wait to see how he figures it all out. He knows his limitation. If one man, a human man with two eyes in one location of a nation can say, "Look at everything that's going on." How much more can God see everything that's going on? Know everything that's going on, understand why it's happening and how he's going to deal with it. He is unlimited and infinite. We are limited and finite. Job chapter 28, verse 24 says this, God looks to the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. He knows it all. So Habakkuk says, I don't know it all. I'm going to be rebuked, reproved, because I don't clearly see everything. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 26 through 28. Lift up your eyes on high. See who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their hosts by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might, the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? and the justice due me escapes notice of my God. Those are great words that Habakkuk is saying. Why is my way hidden from you, and the justice that is due me escapes the notice of my God? And then God says, but do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired, and his understanding is inscrutable. That's why Habakkuk says, I'm going to wait for you to respond in hope, I'm going to wait in hope. I know you'll respond. I'm going to wait in humility because I know I'm wrong. I don't see everything. I do know this about God. Psalm 69, verse 5. You know my follies, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. Therefore, I think Habakkuk waits in humility. I know I'm wrong in something. Jeremiah 16, verse 7. My eyes... This is God speaking. My eyes are on all of their ways. None of their ways are hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. So Habakkuk moves from appealing to God's holiness in his lament to awaiting God's response with hope and with humility. Margaret Thatcher, former prime minister of England, once said, I am extremely patient, provided that I get my own way in the end. We're a lot like Margaret Thatcher, I don't want to wait if I don't know what the outcome's going to be. I don't want to wait if I don't know what's going to happen, what's going to unfold. I don't like waiting. So how can Habakkuk wait like this? Habakkuk can wait because in his lament, he's being reminded of the character of God. He's moving from provision prayers to presence prayers. He's moving from God, do something, give me something, act, to God, even if you don't do anything, I just want you. And regardless of what it takes to bring me to you or to gain more of you, I'm fine with it. He's moving in that direction. Habakkuk's problem, interestingly enough, and this is what happens in lament, your problem, namely, God's holy, God's sovereign, and it doesn't seem like he's doing anything, becomes the solution. God's holy, God's sovereign. He's up to something, and he's good. He's not allowing evil to go unpunished. So God's holiness and God's sovereignty at the beginning of Habakkuk's lament are his problem, and they are now becoming his solution as he presses into those things. That's why lament is so beautiful, and it's so necessary, because it doesn't stand far off and say, well, God's holy and God's sovereign. I don't understand. I don't like it. And I'm just staying here. No, you're pressing into those things, and they're transforming your view. Elizabeth Elliot said it this way, To paraphrase, he says, if you have a God who's holy enough, big enough, powerful enough, and good enough to get rid of all evil, and you're mad at him for not doing it, then you also have a God who's big enough, holy enough, more powerful enough than you could possibly comprehend that has plans and good purposes in the midst of what he's allowing to happen. If you have a God that's so big, and he's allowing evil to happen, and you can get mad at him because he's so big that he could stop it if he wanted to, but he's not. If you have a God that that is that big that you are able to get mad at, then you also have a God who is apparently big enough that could have purposes and plans beyond your wildest dreams to fix the problems that are going on in your life. That's our God. He's big enough for us to bring these laments to, and He's big enough to fix all the problems that are going on. God is in the business of fixing, fixing problems. God is in the business of fixing problems. So can I ask you, what is the biggest problem going on in your life right now? What's the biggest problem going on in your life? I know we have many in our church who are struggling financially. I know we have some in our church who have lost their jobs. I know we have some in our church who are struggling with health. A lot of problems going on. And I don't want to minimize those problems at all. What is the biggest problem in your life? What's the biggest problem in the world? What is the biggest problem that God needs to overcome? Can I submit to you the biggest problem in the entire universe, the biggest problem, is how can a holy God forgive sinful people? How can a holy God forgive sinful? sinful people. This is the biggest problem in the entirety of human history. God can't turn a blind eye to sin. God can't just wave a wand over sinners and say, you know what, Forgiven." even though you're all messed up. How is he going to forgive them and still be the holy God that he is? Romans chapter 3 answers that question. If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, Paul writes in verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh can be justified in God's sight. You can't do good enough things to make yourself holy enough to get to heaven. That's what Paul's saying. No one can do the the law doing good things, being a religious person, being a good person. Nobody can do enough good things to cleanse themselves, to make themselves right before God. What does the law do? Well, the law, through the law, the knowledge of sin is seen, and it comes through the the law. So the law is good for something. It shows us that we're sinners in need of a Savior, but the law can't save us. No one can do enough good works to save themselves. Well, how are we supposed to be saved then, Paul? Are we all hopeless and helpless? But, verse 21, now, apart from the law, apart from working your way to heaven, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, there is no distinction. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and everyone could be justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justified as a gift. So, there's, there's two ways that Paul is saying we can be saved. There's two hypothetical ways of being saved. Hypothetical way, number one, is you get yourself saved. And he's saying that's impossible. You and I can't save ourselves because we can't do enough good things to get to God on our own. We have bad works. We have sin. We're all, we all know that we're guilty. He says all sin and fallen short of the glory of God. We all know that intrinsically. We've all felt guilt and shame. We know we're sinful people. And Paul says once you are a sinner, you can never become a non-sinner ever again. You're stuck in sin. So the the first way of trying to get to God, namely by working your way to him, that way could never work. So God sends Jesus to come get you. The work that we would need to do to cleanse ourselves, to get ourselves right, to make ourselves clean, that work Jesus did because he never sinned. He shows up on earth. He is born as a human, so he lives our lives out before us but he does so flawlessly in perfection, never sinning. And then at the cross, God the Father treats Jesus as if Jesus had lived our sinful lives. He punishes Jesus at the cross as if Jesus had lived our sinful lives and then takes Jesus's perfection and gives it to us, places it in our account. It's like if you wrote a check to somebody, it's like God's writing a check to Patrick Carmichael. What's the amount? It's all of Jesus's perfection put into his bank account put into my moral bank account, and he takes all of my sin and puts it into Jesus's account and punishes Jesus on the cross and blesses me for living the the life that Jesus lived out inside of me, before me. I could never live it on my own. But Jesus didn't stay dead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit raised Christ Jesus from the dead, announcing once and for all those who would trust in Christ alone to be saved. They are justified. That's why he says, you're justified as a gift, verse 24. You're justified as a gift. It's a free gift, that word for gift. Uh, Elsewhere in the gospels, uh, Jesus says, you have hated me without a cause. You've hated me without a cause. That's that word gift. It's the same Greek word. Gift, it's translated gift here, and it's translated in the gospel records, without a cause. We're justified without any cause. We have done nothing to earn God's love. He just lavishes it on, on us through Jesus Christ. It's a gift. Jesus was, verse 25, displayed publicly as a propitiation. It's a big word for the satisfaction of God's wrath. The penalty that we deserve because of our sin, Jesus took it, removed it. He paid the price. The penalty is gone. He did it through his blood. And we we gain that. We receive that through faith. We don't receive that by doing good things. We receive it just by believing. And Ephesians uh, 2 tells us that even the, the faith that we have to believe in that precious gift being given to us is a gift by God himself. And then he says this. This was all to demonstrate God's righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that God would be just or righteous and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is Paul answering the biggest problem in the universe. How can a holy God, a righteous God, forgive sinful people? If he is a good and holy judge, which he is, Proverbs tells us that if a holy, good judge tells a guilty person they can go free, they're condemned by God. They're an atrocity to God. They're they're despicable in God's eyes. So how can a God who is a holy and just God say to a sinner, you are forgiven and you can go free? Is God unjust in saying that? That's the biggest problem in the whole universe. And that's why Paul says, no, the answer is Jesus. My friends, this is why Jesus is so amazing. The answer is Jesus, because Jesus lives out the sinless perfection that we needed to live out on our own. Jesus lives our life perfectly before us so that God the Father can take his record, substitute it in our place, take our sin, throw it onto Jesus, and now God is not just turning a blind eye to sin. He's not just saying, hey, sinner, I forgive you. Uh, We'll just say you're not guilty anymore. No, he's taken a perfect record of righteousness and put it into our account so that he can say you truly are not guilty because somebody took your guilt in your place, condemned in your place, punished in your place so that you can be forgiven. That's why God is just, he's righteous, and he is the one who makes sinners righteous in a righteous way. Both of those happen at the same time. Now, why do I say all that? Number one, because if you don't know that you've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you don't know that you are saved without a shadow of a doubt, if you don't know that your penalty has been taken from your shoulders and placed upon Jesus, if you don't know that today is the day to be saved, Today is the day to trust in Jesus, to stop working, to stop thinking, uh, I, I need to try harder, I need to do more good works, I need to be better. Just stop doing that. That won't get you to heaven. That's what Paul is saying. The works of the law won't justify you. Stop denying that you need justification. Stop denying that you need forgiveness. And cling to Christ. Turn to Jesus and you will live. That's why we love Jesus. We sing songs about Jesus. People say, why are you singing songs about Jesus all the time? Because he's the one who in his holiness and perfection loved us, gave himself for us, died, rose from the dead, and offers us eternal life. We can be forgiven and go free because Jesus in his kindness gave himself for us. That's why we sing. That's why we love him. And we desire that you would love him as well. But the second reason that I say this is because if you know that in our biggest problem, God didn't wait. In our biggest problem, God didn't wait and go, well, they have to figure it out. They have to come to a solution. They have to understand how to do it on their own. If in our biggest problem, our greatest dilemma, if God says, I will act and I will not wait, then we know in every other dilemma in life, in every other circumstance in life, we can wait because God's not going to wait. We can sit and rest because we know God is actively working. We can trust, we can hope, and we can be patient because we know that God is working all things together for our good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing kindness. Thank you for Habakkuk's second lament that is just a magnificent display of trust, of crying out to you, of waiting, appealing to your character and saying, God, I I don't understand. I'm struggling. But I will wait. I will wait with hope. I will wait in humility. And God, I know you're going to answer. If Habakkuk could say those things before the cross ever happened, then God, we have all the reason in the world to wait with hope and with humility. What more can you say than to us you've already said? What more can you do than you've already done in Christ Jesus?